0: Welcome to this special lockdown edition of York Hospital Ball. Our guest on this episode is Guy Mowbray, the lead commentator for the BBC, whose football education came from the terraces of Bootham Crescent. Guy speaks passionately about the past and present York City Football Club, as well as guiding us through his career from local radio to World Cup final commentary as well as a real insight into his work on the institution that is match of the day. This podcast is a spin-off for York Hospital Radio, who provides a service for those suffering in hospital and relies on sponsorship. If you enjoy the podcasts and you feel you could help the station, then please donate whatever you can, however big or small, to www.justgiving.com forward slash york hospital radio www.justgiving.com forward slash york hospital radio but without further ado here is guy mowbray speaking exclusively to york hospital ball
1: Thanks, Guy, for joining us. First question really, really has to be, how are you faring in, in lockdown? As
2: as well as can be expected. We've all got our health in the household, so that's the main thing. Yeah, going through different stages of it, from frustration to bewilderment through to mild anxiety through to sort of a strange sort of semi-euphoric feeling in sort of the second week when you sort of think, well, I'm on holiday, kind of. I know it's not, but... You know, it sort of goes through everything, then back to anxiety and depression and boredom, and it flies wildly all over the place depending on what news you've watched that day, I guess.
1: Have you sort of thought, oh, I would normally be doing this, or I'd be preparing for, I guess, the Euros? <sighs>
2: Yeah I've tried not to because that just gets you we just had the the weekend go by which would have been FA Cup semi-final weekend and it was pointed out to me that I would have been at Wembley all weekend and that sort of oh that was that was a hard one but you know what it is what it is you've got to get on with it like everybody else has and uh, yeah some days I just think well it will come back again and then it'll be great and I'll be probably asking for a break after a while because it'll be so much but then the other days I think I can't see it coming back and I get really fed up but you know what try and keep yourself as busy as possible
1: so nationally obviously people know you BBC Match for Day commentator main commentator on international tournaments as well but locally kind of people still remember you for for your kind of York City links so I just wonder where where did that passion come from what what was the first game you went to
2: that's just built in like You know, most football supporters in York, I say most, I mean, I grew up in an era where you had a big team as well. Just about everybody did. And there's a heck of a lot of Leeds United, obviously, as there still is in the city. And that's understandable. But yeah, it's just the first game you go to get it from your dad. My my dad was, you know, ingrained in York City from birth as well. He was a York man. So, you know, that's what that's what happens. I went to my first game. It was Peterborough and I was around six or seven. And all I remember is being behind the goal, and that's and being a bit chilly, and that's kind of all I remember about it. I don't have any sort of fever pitch revelatory moment where you walk and see the green pitch and go, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> I think that's a little bit romanticised for most people. Most people that go at a young age don't really remember much of it, I would suggest. I took my own daughter when she was four, and her only memories are of a Yorkie bar and some drinks and sweets. I think that's about it. I do remember, though, my eighth birthday, trying to get this right, and that was 1980, February the 16th, 1980, uh, York won Portsmouth nil, And I do remember quite vividly a lot of that day, and I was taken by my dad with two or three friends, and we sat in the pop stand, and I remember a guy called Mella was in goal for Portsmouth, who'd few years earlier, we played in the FA Cup final for Fulham in 1975. I remember that being pointed out to me. And he was he a shock of blonde hair. So he was an easily sort of memorable guy to see. I also remember that day because he was a, a friend of my dad's. And who knows, something may have crept into my subconscious with the moment it happened. But I also remember that day meeting Malcolm Huntington, who had a long chat with my dad. And we we chatted away for quite a while. And obviously, I didn't talk to him. But you know, my dad said, this is my boy. And he Loves his football and all that, and who knows that may have planted a seed way back. So, so
1: I was looking at that game, and there was two thousand five hundred and nine there against Portsmouth, right, which, isn't it? which is right. quite similar, I guess, to the sort of average attendance of kind of today, isn't Except it? Really, we were
2: two divisions higher,
1: but we were two divisions <laughs> higher. But but what was the the difference with the club back then to now? Because obviously that was forty, 40 years ago, wasn't it? it was...
2: Well, I suppose I was I was only eight, so uh, I can't remember too much about it. I believe. Would it have been Barry Lyons or Charlie Wright, the manager of Charlie Atari?
1: Wright, I think that
2: yeah, yeah, would have been. So it wasn't a great time, was it? He was replying for re-election most years until Dennis came in and rode us to glory. And uh, I don't suppose it was as well cherished and loved then, actually, as it is now. It wasn't until Dennis Smith came in and things started taking off, which was the time when I started going with my friends on my own. That's when the club, for me, took off. I guess we were still Riding the depression of being in the second division and then coming down, which unfortunately I can't remember those, those years because I was too young and you know I didn't know anything about those mid 70s. So I guess there'd been a total drop off, as with football throughout the country, quite frankly. Hooliganism was pretty rife back then, it put yeah. a lot of people off, facilities weren't great. It, it was kind of the lame dog of sports, wasn't it? It was oh, you watch football, oh, that's terrible because it's the year I grew up in. That actually to me is the halcyon days, not because of the hooliganism, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That to me is everything the 80s that's my era i think everybody has their own football era and the 1980s i pretty much know everything about everything about football in the 1980s and that that will always be my era
1: i kind of tried to compare it to my own kind of upbringing and mine was the early 90s really so it was sort yeah. of 92 93 94 obviously fantastic side back then 95 yeah, beating man united then beating everton it wasn't till the late 90s i kind of realized what being a a kind of football fan was because I'd had so much glory I guess in oh, those yes, early days yeah. but yours yeah. I was looking at it was almost the opposite wasn't it because you went against, against Portsmouth and then the, the next year they came rock bottom of the football league like you said re-election for I think the seventh time yeah. in history and then it was a sort of gradual process coming back up but then if we kind of flick forward to 1983-84
2: I mean I went to nearly nearly every game that season in, in the 100 point season um, and yeah Keith Warwin and John Byrne were my absolute idols and Thordy as well. So they they were my heroes. And and that's the era I grew up watching. Uh, Then we had the Arsenal game, the Liverpool games, I often refer to, I did in the, the recent book, The History of Booth and Crescent, which I was, I was very fortunate enough to be asked to write uh, the forward. And, and one thing I think about is that that Pixar film, Inside Out, which has your core memories. Little girl growing up, which has core memories and they're stored in certain parts. Then you get the certain ones that are core and never leave you. And A lot of mine are around Booth and Crescent. And, and one of them would be those big cup ties, the Arsenal and Liverpool games getting up at the crack of dawn. Well, not, not no, before dawn, two, three o'clock in the morning. One time I went with my dad, other times it was with other friends' dads. And we'd stand outside and we'd be queuing right around by the barracks on Burtonstone Lane and queuing up for tickets. Then nine o'clock ticket office opened and we'd gradually snake round and by about 11, half 11, we'd have our tickets for the big game. And it was just, the excitement of queuing was almost as good as the game itself because at, at that age, 11, 12, it was such a big thrill to be doing that. that was right. it, just queuing for your ticket. And then you got your ticket, went home, and then two weeks later the game comes. And and yeah, memories like that are just absolutely priceless to me. And that's you find out about the characters that go to York City, you learn about yeah, the away games and all that. I remember my first away game, which was away to Darlington at Feetham's, which was a strange experience. Went to Doncaster as well that season in the, uh, the pig pen behind the goal, which was horrible at the old
1: Bellevue ground.
2: All these things, they're just great memories, they're core memories and, and that's football for me and it always will be. There were they were great times those times in the mid-80s. I
1: mean, I, I watched back the Arsenal and the Liverpool home games on, on YouTube, the highlights. I mean, it looked like in all those games that they were fair results, every one of them as well. The pitch was possibly a leveler because obviously it was, you know, it was frozen, wasn't yeah. it? The pitch well, the draw I spoke to Mark Lawrenson
2: about this. I've been fortunate because I've worked with Laura for years. So I was, yeah, he doesn't have any complaints about the pitch. He jokes about it, but he knew Brian Foster really well because he was a groundsman at Preston before he came to York. So he used to have a bit of a joke with Fozzie when, when he came two years running for these cup ties. And yeah, we've, we've spoken about it at length and he's got great memories of those days. And No, no but both those one-all draws were absolutely legit. The 7-0 Defeat away to Liverpool the first year. It could have been 20 if it wasn't for Mike Asprey. Mick Asprey was fantastic in goal. It could have been an absolute record beating, that one. He was amazing. And another memory of that one is, is our bus broke down on the way home on the M62. It was sort of smoke coming through the floorboards. So we actually got a lift back on the director's coach. Directors and staff bus stopped and picked us all up. So it was standing room only in the, in the aisles going back to York. And then the following year, that, that was the one unfair result of the lot. The 3-1 yeah. defeat at Anfield because we scored a perfectly good goal through Keith Horwin to, to go 2-1 up and that should have stood. Bruce Grobbler only started rolling around on the floor claiming a foul after the ball had gone in the net. Yeah, the Liverpool players, the ex-Liverpool players I've spoken to, Mark Lawrence and Jim Begley and I wind them up about it regularly. And they agree. Bruce Grobbler won them the cup that year because he absolutely milked it and got that decision. Howard Taylor, mm. terrible <laughs> referee.
1: One thing I noticed as well was when the, uh, you know, the Arsenal, when, when they scored the penalty, Keith Ouch mm. in the last minute, I mean, the crowd looks just like fits a burst. Oh, it? I mean, were you, were you in the ship about about day? No, got-
2: no, actually, I'm on there. That was my first ever appearance of Match of the Day. I was in the enclosure. I was standing behind the dugout. I was brushing snow off the top of the roof. I was 12, I wasn't quite 13. Yeah, I- I'm on it. Penalty goes in. There must have been some sort of ridiculous notion of knowing what I was on about at that age, because I'm there waving the players back to get on with the game. i sort of urging them back, get back into shape. I think <laughs> kids do, thinking they know what they're talking about. So yeah, I- I'm-, I'm on there, just above the dugout. Yeah, they focused on it a few years ago, on Football Focus, actually, because I was I was interviewing Ricky Sprager. So they-, they brought it up saying, well, you two have been in the same place before and all this. And the crowd was amazing. Whenever I look at that, there's that leap, that together leap when the ball hits the and then the surge forward, obviously dangerous as heck now. Yeah. But back then, that was part of it. And a number of things like that I was in back then on the shipo and various other places. You know what? It's wrong to say it because it is dangerous. And we, you know, we should all root for safe standing and all that in future and, and, and things like that. And there's a reason why all-seater stadiums became a thing as well. But, oh, I do feel sorry for football fans of today who didn't experience that at least once. What a rush it was and with inmates it. when a goal went in. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Yeah, well, that was it. I was thinking it did look just a, like a wave of people just kind of going forward oh, if, back. You, if your
2: knees went in a surge and you got underneath, you'd be in all sorts of trouble. Do you remember going over the bridge? The big games, those seasons, those Arsenal-Liverpool seasons and the, the, the 100-point season, I used to always get dropped off the far side on Wiginton Road and we used to walk, me and my mates would walk over the bridge, down the side of the hospital and over the bridge. Yeah. And some of those games, there was that many people going over the bridge at once, both before the game and after the game. We used to have a little game where just pick your feet up and see how far you'd be carried wedged in between people. And you could honestly, you could cross virtually the whole bridge with your feet in the air, just wedged in between people getting carried up by the crowd.
1: Just moving it a, a bit forward to the early 90s. So, so you got kind of your first break with Club Call, which I think was a throwaway line from your dad saying, well, you might not be able to play football, but why not? Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. watching it. Did it feel at the time like a dream job that you were able to kind of... Report on York City.
2: Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't really a job. It was virtually, you know, expenses money, pocket money. It, it, you yeah. know, I had a regular job Monday to Friday in the week, and then okay. on a Saturday or a occasionally Sunday, and very occasionally midweek, I'd go and report for a club call down the telephone line on a York game. If York were away. I'd do a whole City game occasionally. Very occasionally, I'd do a League United game, which involved full commentary, which they were my first ones. And yeah, it was. It was magnificent. It was. It was the best hobby in the world. And that's the advice I give anybody trying to get into this now is. Do that. Do that. Treat it as that. And if anything comes of it, it it is a bonus. I think that's the way to look at it. Um, and it was. It, you know, I'd do my job in the week, but look forward to the weekends when my hobby came into play. And yeah, that was it. That's that's how it all started. From there into local radio, and then from local radio into a full time position, and then yeah, television came calling. And
1: so, so people who, who didn't, who maybe don't know what club call is, so it, so it was kind of just remind people. It was like a premium rate number that you would sort of before social media you'd ring it wouldn't you and I, I didn't know if you could clear up possibly um a bit of an urban myth probably about York City but I, I vaguely remember a story when I was growing up that when uh, when York City beat Man United away 3-0 that, that there was a number of fans that got completely drunk on the way back as, as you would do celebrating and uh, obviously I had school the next day so it didn't involve me but th- this one person he, he went home and um, he, he just sort of passed out in his front room and you know, from all the drink, alcohol that he'd drunk, and then he woke up the next morning to sort of hearing talking, and then he realised he'd run club call when he got home, and then well, I wouldn't be then surprised. Passed out, and then it was it was there off off the hook.
2: I think, if memory serves me rightly, if that it had a cut off point, I think, right. I think I'm not I'm not entirely sure about that. I certainly think one would have been built in. Um, because there'd have been so many incidents like that right around the country. Um, yeah, it was before the internet, and you used to ring up in the week. You'd ring up for news on your team. So, you know, local radio, you'd get a certain amount. We only had Radio York here at the time. Um, you'd get a certain amount of information. Minster had just started, I think, when, when I started, but Club Call had been going for a few years before then. And you'd ring up in the week for news. You know, towards the weekend, you get team news and injury updates, match reports, for, for a club like York, there wouldn't be that much. But for the bigger boys at the top level, it would be a constant stream. It would be updated hourly with, with news from your club. And a percentage of the profits went to the club as well. So it was, in, it was you, know, you felt like you were supporting the club by doing it. Yeah. Uh, and then you get commentary. York, we didn't do commentary. We just did updates on the York line most of the time. But all the, all the bigger teams had commentary via club call. And, and famously, Elton John used to ring up from the USA. He used to ring Watford club call and listen to the entire commentary down the phone at, 25p or whatever it was per minute plus whatever the international call cost was but then again i should think he could soak it up
1: quite p- comfortably so, so you mentioned about those sort of big breaks into into local radio and you, you worked for sun, sun fm in the northeast and metro radio i mean 1998 sounds like um you know like your big year almost like your breakthrough year commentating on the 4-4 sunderland charlton at Wembley. yeah, yeah i think I won an award didn't it as well and and then obviously going to the World Cup for Eurosport. you yeah. sort got to play down the yeah. kind of being the youngest commentator ever at a World Cup final. Were you pinching yourself there thinking, God oh, got five yeah. years
2: ago? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if ever that could be verified. That's just nonsense is that somebody's written that. Yeah, my first game covered would be York-Brentford when I went to shadow John Temple, who was the club called coordinator. I went to shadow John. John was good enough to give me a chance. And that was October 93. We just after to play a final. And it was York-Brentford, lost 2-0 at home. And I shadowed him. So October 93, I went from there to by July 1998 doing the World Cup final television. And that was just purely through a chain of events, being very fortunate to be in the right place and be reliable and do my job for whoever asked me to do it. And the Sun mm-hmm. FM thing came about because Minster FM bought Weir FM, yeah, the which then transformed there, into Sun FM. Yeah. So I was I used to do the Breakfast Show for Minster, do the sport, and then I would produce the sports bulletins for Sun FM and Yorkshire Coast Radio and do them from York as well, from Dunnington. And then on a weekend I'd leave the sports show to Matt Pell's in York and I'd go and do the Sun FM one for Sundler because we had full commentary. So that's where the Sunderland link came in, and from there Metro came to me and said, "Look, we have official full commentary affiliated to the club, and we do the full games and all this." And that was the big beast of local radio at the time. So I went to Metro Radio in the summer of ninety-seven, coinciding with Peter Reid roller coaster ride with Sunderland. So he used to do all their games. All their commentaries. At the same time, I started doing a little bit for Eurosport. So it's the hardest I've ever worked with that because I was spending three days in Paris a week, four days up in the northeast, and sort of in between coming backwards and forwards to York when I could. And at the end of that season, yeah, Sunderland-Charlton playoff final, still one of the best games I've ever seen. Um, followed by my first ever World Cup for Eurosport, which I'd, you know, I'd been working for Eurosport just over a year. And, and that was the pinch of my, I'll never forget that phone call. I was at my, my now wife's house at the time, which was just behind Booth and Crescent. Uh, one of the terraces, and um, yeah, I could see the floodlights from the front room. Brilliant. And uh, I got the phone call to say it was Eva, the secretary in Paris, and she said, and this is your schedule, and you will be doing this. You'll be flying out of Manchester into Paris on June or whatever. And then on July 12, 1998, you, you'll be doing the final, the Stade de France. And I said, sorry? And she said, you'll be doing the final, the, the World Cup final for us. And I went, well, hang on, have you read somebody else's schedule out? And she said, no, 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 this is yours. Simon thinks that you can do it. And this was Simon Reid, who's a famous tennis commentator and ice skating commentator, and the brother of Oliver Reid. Yeah. And Simon was the co- coordinator of commentaries at Eurosport, and I did something right that he liked, so uh, he put me in. I was like a sponge then, I just soaked up every bit of advice he gave, I, and he's one of my leading influences still in what I'm doing now. So yeah, he just soaked it up, did it, loved it. As I say, I was working seven days a week and not one of it, not one bit of it felt like work. Did you yeah.
1: receive any sort of formal training then with commentary or anything like that? Or?
2: Not, not really any formal training, no. I mean, as time's gone on, I've learnt the legal side of things and what you have to avoid when you're broadcasting and, you know, you have to go through all that, otherwise you could be in all sorts of trouble. Most of it, I do find, is common sense. And ge- generally then, it's just been the fact that I have just been a football nut since birth. I kind of understand the game. I was always... As a kid playing, I was never a great player, but I, I knew what to do. I couldn't always do it myself. So I think probably it's, it's a decent base from which to be a commentator from.
1: What was the key differences between radio commentary and TV commentary? Was there much to kind of adapt with or? Yeah,
2: yeah. I think it helped actually doing both together for you know, two and a half years. I did both together. You know, one day I'd be on the radio and the next day I'd be on television. And I think that really helped because you had to think, what am I doing today? What medium am I doing today? So when you did the television, you were very definite about, I'm not going to speak that much. I will. And, and you just learnt the different techniques, I think, so much so much more quickly. People say, and this is, with the Rewind series I'm doing at the moment for BBC TV, the, the, the one downer of it for me, and I love doing it, is every weekend we get a caning because it's, oh, isn't it great to hear the old commentators? They're so much better than, and then they name me and they name all the others. And I think, right, okay, you've praised the program in one hand and then you've absolutely ripped me apart in the other for my regular job. And you sort of think, I wish people would bear in mind, everything seems better when you're younger. It just does. And and the older you get, the more rose-tinted those spectacles become. And I'm the same. When I hear commentary now, I hear the voices that I grew up with. I hear Brian Moore, John Motson, Barry Davis, Peter Jones, the late Peter Jones on the radio. They are the voices that I hear commentary in. I certainly don't hear myself because those were my formative years. I've listened back to quite a lot in the, in the course of making these programmes. People say, we talk too much. I am doing now because I've not spoken to anybody in weeks with this lockdown. But, you know, we, we don't. And funnily enough, off the back of the World Cup Rewind programme the other week, I watched the entire Watford Wolves FA Cup semi-final from last year, which I'm, I'm not given to doing often, watching my own stuff back. There was no difference at all in the amount of words, what we said. If anything... And, and this is with full respect to the guys of yesteryear, we add, we add far more. You can take it or you leave it. You don't have to listen to every fact. And yeah, we are guilty of putting too many things in at times, but we certainly add far more to the television pictures than was the technique of that day. Now, you might prefer the technique of that day, but when I listen back to the old stuff, I think a lot of it is just names. It's just mm. calling names. And a lot of the time, not even that, there's a lot of the goalkeeper. Nobody bothered with pronunciations then or getting it right or being bothered about getting it right you know ajax was a common thing to hear every era is of its time and you get what is the the way for that era
1: got a lot more information now these days haven't you
2: and so is the viewer that's the key that's the key point you you've got to be knowledgeable you know you're treating the viewer with a bit of respect and the viewer has a lot more information now at their fingertips well quite literally at their fingertips than they ever used to so i think we have a duty to to bear that in mind
1: the first world cup i watched was 94 i knew a couple of the brazil players but i didn't really know their team there was still a bit of mystery about them, whereas oh, now I would, I would know every player 1 to 11.
2: It's funny you've used that word mystery, and that's absolutely right. And this is also why these programmes are going down so well, these Rewind programmes, and why I love doing them, because it was better then. To me, it was better, that air of mystery. Even hearing the commentary down a telephone line, it's better. I know it's not better, but in my head it's better because it's romanticised. It, it makes it feel like something that's just out of reach to you, whereas, as we know now, we can watch in normal times – a game of football every day from any corner of the globe so i preferred it when it was just that little bit more exotic but it doesn't mean it was better better it's just it romantically different. better
1: speaking of brazil the 98 world cup final at mm. what point did you hear about ronaldo not playing and that how did you deal with that well, as a 26 year old Did
2: you? well there's, there's another little bit of story there because Pinching yourself, that that was a moment of pinching myself because when I got to my position at the start of the France, uh, one I've been in three or four times in the tournament Eurosport's position there for every game throughout the tournament. When I got there for the for the final against Brazil, and I looked round about two two and a bit hours before kickoff, and Pele is sitting right behind me, which was just astonishing, just just absolutely astonishing. Now I'm trying to be sort of professional, so I don't want to ask for a photo or an autograph or anything i had trevor Stephen as my co-commentator former everton the rangers winger we were both like school kids and we t- i have a picture actually on my wall at home and my office wall which is of me and trevor and we're leaning back and we're trying to get Pelle into the photo but it hasn't quite worked but that's exactly what we were trying to do and we well trevor did i was too scared trevor actually asked him somewhere somewhere in my house and oh i hope to goodness i've got it still i have the team sheet that came out that had edmundo on it not ronaldo we were handed the official team sheet an hour and a half before kickoff. Edmundo, oh, hang on a minute, Ronaldo's not playing. What's going on here? So we sort of, the information flying backwards and forwards. We had French producers trying to find out this, that, and the other. And, and Trevor actually turned round and asked Pele. And he said, excuse me, Mr. Pele. I remember him saying that. Because we didn't know how to address him. Ronaldo, he plays? He doesn't play, he plays. And Pele sort of nodded serenely and said, Ronaldo, he plays. And, and sort of looked at us and... For years, I thought, I think he made that happen. I think he ordered it. He knew. We only had the team sheet with Edmundo on, but Pele knew he was playing. And we said, he you sure? We showed him the team sheet. And he said, no, he plays. He plays. Ronaldo definitely plays. So they knew. And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories about that, whether it was a, a Nike instruction. Yeah, say, it was, yeah. That's that's one of the theories. But he certainly wasn't right. He wondered no, about it. No, no. Like, and fart. he was unbelievable in yeah. that
1: tournament up to them, wasn't he? He was, he he was, was kind brilliant.
2: Of... And then in that game, he was like a, as Billy Connolly would say, he was like a fart in a fog. He was just absolutely <laughs> useless.
1: You didn't say that on commentary.
2: <laughs> I didn't say that. I wish I had.
1: <laughs> Moving on. So you went, went back to, you know, saw Sunderland get 105 points, but obviously... York City done that in the 80s, so I've been there <laughs> 101. 101 um, Yeah. And then on to ITV and then BBC, where, where, where you are now. How, how much prep work do you do building up to, to games? And how, how far in advance do you know which games you're doing?
2: I do far too much. Everybody does. I, I say far too much. I don't. Probably don't do enough, actually. What I mean by far too much is 90% of it isn't used. And that means you've watched a good game. But you have to be prepared for every. Eventuality that might happen, which, as we know, over the course of two hours in a game of football, could be anything. So you've got to have notes on every single player who might be involved. I have a system. I do mine. My notes are not a thing of beauty because I do mine all on computer now. Just for the amount of games I do, I couldn't handwrite them. I'm sort of that annoying perfectionist type. If I make an mistake when I'm handwriting, I'd have to start again, and it, it would cause chaos. I'd never get them finished. So I do them all on computer with a template and I update as I go on. So, for example, if I'm doing a a Liverpool game, I would look back at the last time I did a Liverpool game, maybe it was five games previously, and I would update all the players on that list to the point of the game I'm about to cover. And that includes my expected first team, my expected subs, all of those in reserve, and all of those injured or out on loan as well. Basically, the entire first team squad and reserve setup. Because then when I come back to Liverpool again, I know they're up to date up to a certain point, and it's a lot easier. You very rarely have to do a player absolutely from scratch. Obviously, after transfer windows. And if a new kid comes up after a Carabao Cup week or something, you have to update them then. Yeah, I'll have a note on every single player and it will be bang up to date for each game that I'm doing. So you're looking at, well, for, each, for any given game, Premier League scores nowadays, you're looking at minimum, absolute minimum, you're doing notes, 60-odd players for every game. Then there's the other five pages of notes, which are the clubs, the form, the histories, the manager bios just every little bit with where they could go in the table the team there's, there's everything every eventuality is covered in what i take to the game with me and in the process of doing that over the course of the, the days and weeks leading up to a game it's all going in it's like re, re, I, I was liking it to revising for an exam so you're constantly building up your, your bank of knowledge you're constantly doing things and then the day of the exam you have it in front of you all these notes but you don't refer to them actually all that much because it's all in you do glance down and tick things off if you've said something already. Don't repeat yourself. Tick it off. Make sure you don't do it again. Uh, but you don't use 90% of it, you don't use, which is good because yeah. that I means, you know, the, the, the more you use, generally, the worse game it's been. Thing. You know, the, the awards at the end of a season always go to you commentator of the year and it always goes to somebody who's done a 5 4 or a 4 3. And you think, you know what? We could have got anybody from outside to do that game and they'd have done it absolutely brilliantly. We earn our money on the nil nils when there's naff all to say, but to try and keep it interesting and keep it alive. that. They're, they're where you do your best commentaries, but nobody will ever remember
1: them. How much of, of your commentary is pure instinct? And I'm just going to give an example. So I think it was the 2014 World Cup where Brazil drew with Chile and it, it went to penalties. And I think Hulk scored. And you, and you said, Hulk, incredible. When he, and he scored, but then it got disallowed. And I didn't know whether you'd planned that line or, or whether that is just something no, that came to your head.
2: It, all of it. All of it. The only thing that isn't would be after the handover. So, you know, we cross live to our commentators. I'll have a few words semi-scripted. So, so that, set the you know, scene and context. Set the scene, you know, yeah, whilst yeah. nothing's happening. And you'll you'll sort of write a couple of lines just so you can come off the back of that. And the same with a, a, any Premier League given match day for match of the day. You'll have a line in your head for when the teams walk out of the tunnel. Again, just a scene setter in your team. use. That's it. Yeah. Once the whistle goes, it starts. There is nothing whatsoever prescripted. nothing. It's just whatever comes out, comes out. Now, something like that. You say, Hulk, you bri- your, your mind will ma- automatically go yeah, yeah. incredible. It just will. It's, it's a natural mm. thing. It's just the speed of the brain working, and sometimes you come out with things that are cringeworthy like that. No, no, I, I think there we are. It's just what comes out, comes out, and that's, that's why commentary can only ever be live. It is still the, the biggest bugbear of my life. It gets less every year, thank goodness, because people are more clued up these days but there is still a school of people on the internet who every given weekend via social media will say oh yeah they do it they do it afterwards you know they do the commentary afterwards they just it's edited down to 10 minutes and then they put the commentary on it's just absolute not and it's because i'll say something there'll be something like you know there'll be a corner and i'll say well if they score from this you know that would be incredible that would be incredible and and then and then there is a goal and they go oh right well you see they're clearly new no because if they don't score from this you don't remember it it's it's, it's just nonsense and also your experience of watching hundreds of games a year you know you you get a feeling for when something's going to happen if you tee it up and it doesn't happen so what nobody remembers it the one time I did it and I did it once and it was on radio it was on Sun FM or Sun City 103.4 as it was then it was a Sunderland game years ago I remember driving to the game and 1996 it would have been and I remember thinking if Craig Russell scores for Sunderland today I'm going to say this I can't remember what line it was But I did do it and I stumbled over it and I made a mess of it and it made a complete pig's ear of the goal. So every commentary you hear on Match of the Day, I can absolutely 100% on my family's life guarantee you it is done live whilst the game is happening 99.999% of the time by a commentator who is inside the stadium and it is edited afterwards and then you watch what has been edited down. Very, very, very occasionally if a commentator, for example, cocks up on the goal scorer and gets the name wrong or misidentifies, a producer might say at halftime or whatever it is, can you give me a quick line to correct that? Because obviously it's going out at half ten at night. What would be the point of leaving it if you've done that? They give the commentator the choice. They do. They always would say, and I know, and I can only speak for those that I've talked to about this, but I know myself and Steve Wilson for two, I know others as well will do this as well. We have a little rule. We say we're not doing it. If we cock up, that's our fault. We're going to live with it. And hand on heart, in how many years have I done television commentary now? Since 1997, hand on heart, I can say I have redone a goal less than three times in my life. And it will happen if you think about all the thousands of moments and minutes. But I've redone a goal, and I'm pretty certain I have never done it for Match of the Day, who I've been doing commentaries for since 2004. Again, you learn as you go along. And if a goal goes in and you're not quite sure who scored, don't gamble. Wait. You don't have to call it instantly. A lot of times when a goal goes in, it's best actually just to say nothing. Let the moment breathe for itself. Then you can go through it all in a minute when and the I replay think comes in.
1: Alan, Alan Green on Five Live used to almost say into the net every time a goal went in, didn't he? And to yeah. give him some time to, sure it to work I'm out sure. who it was live question might be to do with normally that you could watch any game in any country any any day of the week can not you and obviously a lot a lot of these tv companies presume won't be sending a commentator to a german no there's there's
2: there's a lot of the games that are overseas which in the course of a season you will do from a studio be it in manchester or london or wherever the company's based so for example You know, when I'm doing a game for BT Sport in the Champions League, I will be, 90% of the time, I will do... I don't do... I'm not contracted to them. I do it on a freelance basis. So they have their own contracted guys doing your Man City's and your Liverpool games. I will do kind of the best of the rest. So say Real Madrid v Juventus or something. I'll be doing the top overseas game. They won't send me for that. It would be prohibitive cost reasons and logistically, it would just be a nightmare. And all, all networks around the world are like that. So if it's an overseas game and it's not one of your teams, your core teams playing... We will do it from the studio in England, which, by the way, is not as easy because then you no. do have to be, you have to be a lot more vague because you're not quite sure at times of things that are happening off camera.
1: Do you ever get nervous comments? I was looking at the, the sort of stats from the last, from the World Cup and, and kind of against Sweden, there was 19.9 million viewers watching it. Are you aware of that? Are you, does that make you more nervous?
2: I'm, I'm not, no. I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if there's that many or 10 people watching. It's not going to change how I do the job. I often joke about it and say, you know, especially on a Saturday for match of the day when I'm doing a game, I don't have a Coke on with me then. So essentially, I'm talking to myself, which is the first sign of madness. So I'm looking forward to that. That's essentially what you're doing. Or, or you're, talking, you're talking to a viewer or one particular viewer and that's it. it you don't think about it at all. You, you honestly don't the bigger games the live games and and even actually recorded games on a Saturday you know at five to three as the teams walk as I'm about to start with my pickup line as the teams are about to come out many many times I get a really dry mouth and have to take a bit of water and I'm sort of swallowing frantically and and I still do that pretty much every match but it's excitement more than nerves I would say I'm I'm still fortunately in the position of being excited every single match that I go to I I genuinely no matter where it is or what it is I'm thinking don't want to be anywhere else and it's especially for match of the day you never know where the best game's going to be you know a number of times the, the really big ones let you down and they aren't quite so good so you know people sometimes say to me it's a standing joke you know you'll turn up at what did I do the other week on oh, Newcastle Brighton or Newcastle Burnley 0-0 draw you know and you turn up and somebody will say when you get there oh what are you doing here what have you done wrong and you just say we don't know where the best game's going to be no idea A classic example of that, this goes on to another topic which is about the running order which everyone has got an issue with. Believe me, I can again assure people there is not one element of favouritism, bias whatsoever in the match of the running order. Our main editor on Match of the Day isn't particularly even a football fan. He doesn't support any particular team. He supports Wales. He's more of a rugby man but he knows his football. There is no bias whatsoever. Bigger teams will possibly generally be up there because they're more entertaining to watch and more people want to watch them if you're so. at the bottom of the table it's the same thing if you're at the bottom of the table you're more likely to be on further up the order because it's more it's more interesting if you're in the middle if you're a mid-table team and you, Sunderland for years were a mid-table team and I remember we used to have arguments You'd just go to Sunderland I'd always get sticks saying why are we always on last as well you know what every fan of every team says that and you're not. And interestingly, if you're at the top challenging or if you're at the bottom scrapping, you'd be on a lot further up because outside Sunderland, you're not that interesting right now to everybody. Everybody thinks the programme is just for their team and it's not.
1: <laughs> so, but you mentioned about co-commentators. What, is there any in particular that you prefer doing with or, or that you've got a good rapport with? Yeah, you've you got to know with? them.
2: You've got to know them well enough and you've got to be confident well enough. And, and I like the ones personally where it's quite clear they get on and they're having a bit of a laugh. I mean, my all-time favourite that I've loved working with would be, be Lauro, be Mark Lawrenson. One, because he was a sort of a bit of a hero as a kid growing up because of everything that he'd won, but also because he just genuinely just football team. is entertainment. He's quick-witted. He likes to laugh. And, yeah, a younger generation didn't like him, and I think that's why he started to be phased out a little bit by the BBC. But I love working with Lauro because when all's said and done, what's wrong with putting a bit of a joke in? It's a game of football. Let's have a bit of a joke. I, you know, I go to my local and people used to say to me, oh, do you hear Loro today? Loro was on form today and I loved it when he said it. And I think, yeah, why not? But whereas you sort of very serious football, fantasy football numbers merchants get very upset with somebody putting humour into a game of football. They don't seem to like it at all. They, they actually get more stick than the commentator, it seems to be these days. And I think that's all pre-prejudiced on who they played for and who you don't like and who you do like I think um,
1: Could you just quickly share the story about Brian Robson at the 98 World Cup
2: Brian was different in that he, he came to do it for Eurosport and I was told initially in that phone call that I was doing the final with him he, he did the last 16 I know that and then he had to go back because Middlesbrough was starting pre-season training and he was the manager of Middlesbrough at the time and I remember we were all sort of sitting there going well did he not know when it went on till so sort of Brian suddenly had to go back and didn't do more and he kind of didn't really, I, I always got the feeling he didn't really get commentary. It wasn't for him. He sort of, he, less is more was definitely his mantra. He didn't really say a lot. There was a game in Marseille, because I'd been with him in Paris and, and was, was in the car and picked him up from the airport before the tournament started, day of the opening ceremony. I happened to be in the car. So when, when I, I went down to Marseille and I'd done a few games in the South, when he turned up to Marseille a week and a half later or so, he'd done all his commentaries with Archie McPherson at the time. So when he met me, he was all... How are you? How's it been going? Yeah, fine, mm. fine, 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 no problem. And we got to about 10 minutes before kickoff, and he was still down talking to Terry Butcher, who was doing it for radio, and they were chatting away like old mates. So I had to rush down and say, Brian, we're on in a minute. And he went, Well, yeah, but where's Archie? And I said, oh, I'm the commentator today doing it with me. And he went, Oh, right. oh so, I'm really sorry, mate. I, I thought you were the driver. <laughs> and and that, <laughs> that, that was kind of, yeah, he was very relaxed. When you think of Brian Robson as a player, what a player, and all, you know, 100% effort, commitment, and preparation, and yet, I've not heard him do a lot more. If you think of his reputation, he he should be one of our main analysts and pundits. But I think that was the tournament when he maybe realised, no, I'm, I'm better off sticking to coaching and what have you. He, he, did, he didn't really go in for it much after that.
1: Just sort of moving on to, to the modern day. You've obviously, last tournament, VAR was introduced and now you've had a season of it, well, near enough with it in the, in the Premier League. What was your opinion on it when it came in and what's your opinion on it now? Changes because...
2: the the thing's fluid the thing's growing it's in its infancy it's here to stay and it will get better we're all just gonna have to be patient and go with it and grow with it and probably the next generation behind us will be a lot better at that than we are i was a big advocate of goal line technology and that was mainly because of 2010 lampard's shot five miles over the line which would have been one of the great goals in english world cup history as well but so that made my mind about goal line technology which has worked well I, i was a little bit reticent about VAR, I thought it was a, a two footed jump when a simple step could have been made. And I still hold that view, actually. I think rather than giving it a name and saying what they will be looking at and having it all labelled and all written down mm-hmm. and, you know, there to follow, this will be it. We will not use it for this. We will use it for this. If it was purely, for example, the fourth official sitting either in a truck or up with us in, on the gantry with access to all the monitors and replays that come very quickly, as another pair of eyes to the referee, and constant communication, I think that would work better, personally. I think the flow would continue. You know, literally, the referee, I didn't get a good view of that, did you? Yes, and I think you've got to give a penalty. Or, penalty's right, but you've got to send him off as well. You know, it's still in the referee's Mm -hmm. gift, but they work as a team anyway. You know, they regularly talk to their assistants. And and I just believe that would be a better system. And fans wouldn't need to particularly go through this rigmarole. Because essentially, that's all it is, another pair of eyes. But then we have this process, and it stops, and we wait. I'll give you an example. I did a game at Burnley recently and the ball went out for a corner. A corner was given. It wasn't a corner. Quite clearly it wasn't a corner. Now, it won't be long before it happens when a goal is then scored from that corner. Now, VAR can't rule it out. Once the corner's given, that's it. But why not? Why do we have got this list of it can only be used for this, this, this and this? Why can't the guy with the monitor go quickly, no, nope, not corner, goal kick, change that. Why can't we do that? But, but, but I, I honestly believe just another pair of eyes was the most important thing, rather than an all-singing, all-dancing system, which, again, alienates fans because they're waiting for decisions, they're pulled over. It's just too scientific. That said, the gene is out of the bottle now, so we are going to have to get used to it, and it will get better. I think there have been signs in recent weeks that it has been getting better. We saw Michael Oliver go to the monitor, would you believe, in one game. So they've been getting used to it just like we have. So it will get better. We're all going to have to get used to it.
1: Because for players, I always feel sorry for them. If they get a last-minute winner it's going to come to a point where they don't know whether they can celebrate or not because no, we're nearly there. they need to, we're need nearly to there. check. And would it be the same as a commentator? Sort of, you know, the joy of kind of, you know, say, Aguero scoring in the last minute to win the title. Well, but...
2: as, as you can imagine, with that moment would have been totally different now. You know, we've talked about this a lot. I've talked to Martin Tyler and all my colleagues about it. We talk about nothing else, to be honest, on a match day quite a lot. Although, again, I've noticed in the last few weeks and months, it's just died down a little bit as we've got our heads around it. But we were talking about techniques in the early part of the season. Now, what do we do? Do we go full guns on a goal and then sound silly? Or do we sort of hang on? And I think most of us came to the, the idea, no, we just do it as we've always done it. It's an entirely natural reaction, an entirely natural reaction as you would do any other time. So, for example, I will go nuts on the goal and maybe then if I see a replay, it might come into my head, oh, you know, that might be offside. That's the point to then start questioning it. I I object to the offside ones more than anything because I just think that's not what the rule is there for. It's not for forensic analysis. And I know there's a whole load of people saying, no, offside is offside. And if it's proven, I just think the margin of error is so great. It's a fluid game. Goal line technology is one thing. The goal line doesn't move. When players are moving all the time, first day of the season, Man City at West Ham. Now I know City won 5-0 anyway but Raheem Sterling has a goal ruled out. And when you look at it, and it was the first armpit case that we saw in the Premier League mm. this season. It was the first one we saw. Now I've looked at that over and over again, and I swear, no part of his body is actually off. Raheem is such a slightly built guy. It's the fabric of his shirt hanging. That's all it is. He's not offside. That's no. not why the offside law exists. And that to me is ridiculous. And I, I just think with, with offside, I think we should take that out of VAR. And I think we should just have it as it was, because the the assistant's got 90 odd percent right anyway. The obvious ones, we can use VAR in terms of saying, oh, hang on, he's offside, you missed that one. But for the non-obvious ones, don't start forensically analysing. I've never heard a manager ever, ever, ever in the history of watching all the football I've watched, quibble about one that was an armpit or a toe end. The obvious <laughs> ones will be seen anyway because of all the cameras.
1: Coming on to managers, obviously, but a part of the, the job as well at Match of the Day is to interview people after the games have you had any difficult people to interview is that probably harder than the commentary at,
2: yes it's the bit i least look forward to quite honestly i i wanted to do commentary and that's what i do and, and interview wise I've, I've got my own way of doing it and i'd like to think i'm all right at it i'm not the most forensic i'm not paxman we sometimes get asked why don't you be harder on them etc what you've got to bear in mind is where the soldiers out in the field if you like in the studio they might go into it and really hammer them we're out in the field, we've got to go again the next week. We have to maintain a working relationship with the club. Be as hard as you can, but also realise you've got to maintain a relationship so you can't piss them off completely and not be welcomed back. There's also the fact that it's high anxiety, high emotion yeah. immediately after a game. We've rushed down from the commentary position, and sometimes it is a rush fighting through the crowd, depending on the ground you're at. We're then handed a microphone and sometimes the manager's right there straight away and you're getting your breath back and you're thinking, I'll oh, just commentate them again. What happened? What happened? Which bit shot? You know, that that's mm-hmm. the high pressure point of the day trying to remember it. And yeah, it can be very, very stressful on both parts. I've had difficulties with Pep in recent times who... Is not the easiest. I'd like to think I've got a handle on what he's like as a guy now. We have, There's a bit of mutual respect there now, I think and hope. Uh, he asked me how my golf's going sometimes, so there must be. But yeah, he's not the easiest, especially because he's such a perfectionist. So when City lose, it's, it's not, not ideal. You know what not to ask him. You know how to ask things. I had a famous one with Louis van Gaal, which um, was probably my fault, actually, because I um, I had a, I'm afraid a rather childish habit of every time he opened his mouth to speak, I just couldn't help but smirk and break into giggles because of a Dutch accent. It just made me laugh. I don't know why. Quite an intimidating character, but I couldn't help it. So I had a stupid grin on my face half the time. I liked him actually. Same as Carlo Ancelotti. I absolutely adore that guy. He's such a, such a gentleman. David Moyes, always prickly. Get on very well with him actually. After a game, not always the easiest to interview so there'd be occasions when I wouldn't look forward to David Moyes, Kenny Dalgleish when he was in management, because he's just so sharp and clever and can put you away in a heartbeat. So that was never easy. I had the task of going down the touchline to interview Fergie after City won 6-1 at United, one of the easiest ones ever. He was actually easier to interview after a defeat than after a win, because Mm -hmm. after a win, I always got the impression it was how dare you question me. There's, There's nothing to question. After a defeat, it didn't matter what you asked him, because he would have something he wanted to get out there anyway. Mourinho's a little bit like that. Very clever, deflecting techniques.
1: Just sort of moving it back to York City, really. How often do you get a chance to see York City, obviously, with your job? Well, I can proudly
2: state I have not missed, to this day, a home game that I could physically have got to. So I I go to every single match that I can possibly get to when I'm not elsewhere. So I've been to three this season. I think it was four last season. So, no, it's few and far between, unfortunately. But they're still the best days when I do go. I still go for a couple of beers beforehand, and after time meet up with a few people, and uh, yeah, go and stand behind the goal. And it's yeah, it's still still the best days because it's the only times I get to go to a game and actually be like the rest of us and be completely be biased for once. I still what, what, can never what, quite let that go by the way. I still get people complaining, they'll ask me what I think and I'll say and they'll say, Oh, for God's sake, what do you know? Who do you want to win? <laughs> I, think, you know, I the number of times they oh referee's having a shock or nothing, he hasn't actually got anything wrong.
1: What, what do you know make of him, him in the current climate? I mean it's sad the way that it's kind of spiraled into the National League North.
2: Sad, tragic, depressing. Makes me angry. But we are where we are. The signs have been good this year. And the games I've seen this year have been, by and large, pretty good. I, I follow it, you know, I get the newsletters every day and follow them avidly, still keep stats on all, every York City game on my PC. Can't get away from that. So I, I am closely across it and I prefer not to look back. I think we've got to look forward now. Too much has happened. I was very vocal critic in the Jackie Matt years and we all had to be really. I'm now quite philosophical about that. There you are know, all sorts of theories and conspiracies. I'd love to think one day we'll get the absolute total truth of what went on and why we were kind of frozen out a little bit as a group of fans and you know, why the relationship broke down between club and fans. I'd love to know the reasons why. For the moment, I'm quite happy to content myself with saying, you know what, it was just something they tried and it didn't work. Now, I don't know why nobody from the club has ever not been able to come out and just say that. We tried to do this. It didn't work. We probably tried too long with it as well. But instead, to me, they just dug themselves in deeper and deeper and deeper. And it was a complete PR disaster, which ended up alienating the club from the fans completely. But I've, I've been through all the things. Is it this? Is it that? Is it something sinister? Is it something dodgy? I've gone through everything in my mind. I'm now inclined to sit back and go, you know what? I think they just tried something and it didn't work. It's as simple as that. And it's horrible for all of us, but the fact is, it's gone, and we have a man in charge now who seems to be doing the right things. And all we can do is try and get out of this godforsaken league, and then get out of the godforsaken one above it, and back I into mean, the football league, which is where we should be.
1: Again, I'm quoting you from a previous interview, but I think you once said that you know you, you see everything in kind of terms of when you were growing up. So you imagine York City in in sort of league equivalent of League Two. Imagine League, League United in the Premier League or League One, yeah, whatever it might be. I'm definitely of that that kind of mindset as well. I think I think York City at least should be in League Two. I mean, what one thing that I think might help is maybe Ben Godfrey probably eventually moving on. I mean, you'll have probably seen him a fair few times with your work.
2: It's not far off it either, is he? I don't think. Oh, certain number of appearances and what have you, and the sell-on, cl- yeah, the sell-on clause is quite hefty.
1: Which might help the future, possibly. It, with might, the it might, but as well. again,
2: I don't, think, I don't think any of us can speculate on that at the moment, because we just don't know what the football picture financially is going to be like after all this. Mm. Um, makes me laugh, actually, when I look at all the transfer speculation that still gets reported on. Nobody has a clue who's going to, and I include the biggest clubs of all in this, Nobody knows what on earth the the, the picture's going to be like after all this. So it's utter nonsense to talk about transfers just at the moment. Nobody's planning those right now. Not not one bit. It's not happening, especially not at York's level. It's, it's, uh, nobody knows what the picture's going to be like. All we have to hope is that there's a club to support when we come out of this and that they continue in the direction that they've been going in over the last year or so.
1: Yeah, and who knows? what? what I think there's a decision on May of 7th, I think, as to what how it's going <laughs> to... Yeah,
2: and my opinion on that is, I know the York, York idea is, you know, the season as it is now, that wouldn't be right for Kings Lynn. Points per game, okay, we've been second. If the playoffs aren't happening, then who knows? I, I don't know. I, I'd be, Whichever way you do it, somebody is going to feel hard done to. And I'm I'm uncomfortable with... With anything being decided, unless the season is actually completely finished, reversing it the other way as well. I don't think it'd be right to promote Kings Lynn above us either, because no, I haven't, seen the, I haven't seen the fixtures. But you know, yeah, exactly. Mm. You're not taking into account form and trends either. No. So
1: I still think if you play a bit of it behind closed, it's not the same, is it? I mean,
2: no, it's not. It's not. Whatever decision they come to, it's going to be unfair for somebody. I'm not giving it that much thought to be honest.
1: Thinking about York City, still favourite all-time sort of player, manager, your team. <sighs>
2: goes back to everything's better when you're growing up it'd have to be a Big Keith Warwin would be my favourite all-time player but but you can I can never say Warwin without Byrne so it's those two together and it, it would have to be Dennis Smith as well with a nod to John Ward and Alan Little without a doubt and to Gary Mills anybody who's brought success to the club basically some of the best football ever was in the Gary Mills era although again the sort of the snobbery of me I kept telling myself yeah but it's non-league isn't it so it's not it's still not, nothing mm. we've done to me nothing can ever be as good that's pre-2004. Okay, we got to the playoffs under Nigel Worthington and what have you, and that was wonderful, but nothing. no. I know, I know it depends on the era, but I see people doing their greatest ever York teams. Well, nobody who's played for the club since 2004 can ever possibly be in any great team, to me, because they've not played at the right levels. Now, it's all about the team of the 50s in the semi-final, the 70s in the second division, the 80s under Dennis, and the 90s under John Ward and Alan Little. Those are our four golden eras in, in my book. So I think any great teams you'd have to be an amalgamation of all those four eras. I've, I've got favourites, obviously, over the years, and 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 ones that I've got to know well as well. So ones that are my mates as well. So uh, that's that's really nice. And yeah, some some of them weren't remembered fondly as players, but they're still really good lads, and they're still a part of our history. Yes, I'm thinking about you, Paddy Atkinson. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't as bad as we all made out actually by the way it's just that he wasn't as good as Jim
1: with sort of commentary do you still have sort of, sort of ambitions with it i mean I, I guess like footballers have a relatively short career don't they but as a commentator as long as you kind of your health's good you, you can kind of go on for a long time like, as martin tyler's proven i think he's sort of mid mid 70s now so far I, I, I get the impression that you love major tournaments and the more of them you can do the, the kind yeah of fair, i think I that's that, it. Is that fair
2: yeah i love my week to week bread and butter stuff but the World Cups and European Championships are the, the cherry on the top of the icing. They are, they are just the best. Again, I, I go back to working hard, and they are the hardest you'll ever work, but the most fun you'll ever have. And it's an absolute treat. I was really looking forward to this summer, and hopefully we'll get it next summer. In fact, it might be a bonus. We might get that followed by a World Cup the year after. Superb. They're the things. I want to carry on doing as many of them as I possibly can. Yeah, when you read this stuff in the Daily Mail mainly, but other newspapers as well, it happens every time they go, the BBC are sending an army of staff to the World Cup, and it's your money, and blah, 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 blah. Right. Well, do they know what it takes to put on a major tournament on radio, online, on television, etc.? I can tell you now, I don't know what all of these people do at a tournament. What I do know, 100% true, is that not one of them will have a day off in the four, five, six weeks that they're there. The minute that they are not needed anymore, they're sent home. You don't stay on any freebies for an extra day or two. You are done once your work is done. And while you're there, you're working. There isn't any money wasted. It all goes towards something. And, and as I say, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's brilliant. It's just brilliant because I, I go with a team. I've got my floor manager who's a assistant producer floor manager and an engineer who I wouldn't get on air without and then a co-com who sort of comes in in and out of our group because, you know, we, we, we change co-coms throughout the tournament. So they'll sort of flit in and out. So there's always a team of three or four of us that travel around together. It's like going on a, the most hard-working holiday, and I use the term holiday in quotes, with your mates. You're working constantly, but it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And so I, I do. I, I adore the tournaments more than anything else. But... The bread and butter's not bad either, is it? A Premier League game, twice a week minimum. Yeah, it's pretty good. So I think in answer to your question is, I just wanted to carry on, really. This time at the moment, there's been actually a bit of time for reflection and I probably needed the first week of it because I think, you know, you do that many and you're flying around all over the place that you sort of lose a bit of perspective and you think you're knackered and you need a holiday. Well, I've had that break that I probably needed now and it. it I was starting to question it before, thinking, do I want to go back to that? The abuse you get on social media, the, the scrutiny you get, you can't relax, you're constantly under stress. Do I want to go back to that? I'll well, tell you what, after a few weeks of not doing it, I, I think I've made my mind up. Absolutely, definitely. And I can't wait. Well, when, all, when all's well and everybody's well, then hopefully we can get a bit of football on and that can bring a smile to people's faces.
1: Do you have a love-hate relationship with social media?
2: Yeah, Yeah, I hate it. <laughs> I hate Is that, it. Is that because
1: people just, just ask you stupid stuff?
2: I, I hate it purely because that's just my character I, I understand it's really good And kind of feel an obligation to be on, on Twitter Which is all I really bother with And I feel an obligation because it, It's just the way of the industry If you're not on it you kind of you, know, you might miss out on opportunities and all sorts So I feel as if you have to be on it But I say I hate it and I do hate it Because I'm afraid I'm one of those people That focuses on the one idiot Or the one negative Rather than all the positive stuff and it's really positive most of the time you engage with people, but then there'll just be one and I can't leave it alone. I had a guy this weekend, the FA Cup Rewind program went out and that was really well received. Now, I don't want people to blow smoke up my arse, I don't want any of that, but generally people were saying it was a good program and all that. This guy comes on and basically said, he addressed me, so he wanted me to see it, it was an address to me, and he just said, is it the same moron who put last week's program together? Are they going to miss out all the replays? And, and I just said, I'm all right. you're talking about a colleague of mine there who's not a moron, he's a skilled producer who's been going in during all this yeah, with all the restrictions hard. the difficult working practices to try and put some football on, to try and come up with an idea. I'm doing it remotely, he's doing it in the studio, putting it together. And I just objected to him being called a moron and I, and I, I, couldn't, I just couldn't leave it alone. I, you know, Nobody else had complained about it, not one person. And then when I pointed out, you know, the replays aren't the re- we're putting on great games, that's it. And he went, well, I don't want to see people talking in a pub beforehand, I want to see the game. Go on YouTube then. This is a packaged program where we, we look at the build-up to the game with the old footage, which, by the way, a lot of people like more than the actual
1: games. Yeah, well, I watched the Crystal Palace Liverpool one. I'd never seen it before. It was just just before my era. It was great. The interviews
2: with Steve Koppel in his, in his leather jacket and his, you know you don't see managers dressed like that. It's, it's kind of a piece of history, not just the game, but all the build-up around it is a piece of history. So that's why we've packaged them like we have. Well, this guy didn't want it. He wanted to see just goals and how dare we put it on. And offend him so much and and that was it for all the hundreds of positive comments that was it that was the one thing i took away from the weekend and so i have a problem with social media but it's my problem it's my fault <laughs> and i've got and i've got to get over it but i won't
1: ever best player you've ever commentated on live
2: is in the dean's without a doubt that comes back to 98 and all the way through that world cup and the years that followed i'm, I'm lucky enough to have seen them all in my era and obviously i've seen ronaldo many times And Messi many times, those two are head and shoulders above anybody else in this generation. Different sorts of players. I don't think you can split them personally. I think they're different sorts of players entirely. I've seen Messi have one good game for Argentina, and I've never actually in the flesh in the stadium seen him have that many amazing games that he does week in, week out for Barcelona. So that's why I would put Zidane above him, because he just had more of a profound impact on me. He did things that at the time I'd only ever seen done on a games console. Can't find it at the moment. Somebody was asking after it the other day, actually, but there was a, there was a film made in the 2000s and it was just Zidane and there's just a camera on him during a Champions League game and it just focused on him with different angles and soundtrack to music. And it was, it was beautiful. It was, it, it was what I would consider art. It was a ballet and he, he was just, he was just magic.
1: Let's finish on that, Guy. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sure people listening in the hospital will, will really enjoy your thoughts and insights and hopefully we'll, we'll see some football sometime soon.
2: Yeah, cheers, Dan. Just everybody, stay safe. If you're in there, get well as best you can and uh, hopefully we'll all, uh, we'll all get out of this.
1: Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. And if you do enjoy the podcast and you do feel that you're able to donate, even if it's just a small amount, then please do. It's justgiving.com forward slash your radio. Just to finish off, I thought it was interesting that Guy was mentioning there towards the end of the interview about social media and his kind of irritations with certain people on there trying to goad him. And I noticed a similar thing happened on Saturday night just after the sort of rewind series were happening again. And someone said, you know, no offence but, and they kind of proceeded to accuse Guy of being arrogant or smug. and just think anyone who starts a sentence with no offence but is someone who probably needs to take a bit of a look at themselves and, you know, just in some sort of a staunch defensive guy. He's given up his time there for a charity radio station and, you know, I'm really grateful for him f- for doing that. And also, you know, off air after the interview, we chatted for ages about York City and, and football in general and at no point ever did I think he came across as smug or arrogant. You know, I take people as I find them and, if anything, I think he come across as the opposite so anyway, I thought I'd have to get that little rant off my chest before, uh, before finishing up. So all that's left to say really is to, you know, like I say, keep supporting the podcast if you can, stay safe, hope everyone's well, and hopefully the Oxity community will come together again sometime soon.